Good morning, church. It is an honor uh, to be able to open God's word together with you this morning. I look forward to what God has for us here in this text, uh, the book of Zephaniah. Go ahead and turn there if you're not there. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. And uh, I'm just greatly looking forward to what God has in store. Um, as you're turning there, I just want to say that uh, from Rebecca and me, we, we love you guys. Uh, we, we truly, truly love this church. And there's a lot of you guys that I don't know, um, partly because I deployed. I can blame it on that. I can blame it on COVID. The reality is I'm just an intense introvert, so um, I don't get around much. But, uh, but what you guys have done for our family, we just can't put it into words. And a word to the, the young families out here, parents of young children, you're going to face a temptation uh, many, many times throughout your life to find a church that has large programs. And that's fine. That's okay. But what your children need, what your family needs as a church that upholds scripture as the ultimate authority and loves each other. And you find that church, it'll do things for your kids that you wouldn't even imagine. Um, so thank you guys for being that church for us. Um, and because I'm an introvert, I can't say things like that without tearing up. Let's look at the text. Zephaniah, uh, we're gonna read again what was read earlier uh, because that is... The, the focus, that's the heart of this passage. So chapter 3, verse 14, we're going to read just a few verses there, and I will pray, and we will jump in. Uh, we see there, the scripture says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst you shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Let's pray once again together. Father, we love you. Father, we need to hear from you today. We need your word to penetrate our hearts, to break through those barriers that we put up between us and you. We need your word to get our attention because we are distracted by, by work and by events and by planning and by summer vacation and by hurts and needs. But Father, what we need is right here in front of us. So open our eyes to it. Let us hear from you. Father, we sang just a moment ago, perfect submission, perfect delight. But God, that's a reality that none of us have experienced yet because there's still sin in our hearts. And so, Father, as I stand up with the microphone, I confess my, my own sin. I confess my own unsubmission. Those corners of my heart, God, that you know so well, where I hide and where I'm discontent and where I want things that are not mine because you've not given them to me. Father, my own struggles, my own selfishness, so, Father, we long for the day when we can sing truly perfect submission, perfect delight. 
And so, Lord, as your text points us to that day, I pray you'd just fill us with an eager longing that, that drives us to obedience, that drives us to worship, that drives us to witness so that we can bring others on this journey towards Christ-likeness, towards perfect submission, towards a home, a hope, an eternity with you. So, Lord, speak to us now. From your word, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So church, I want you to know that God loves you. He loves you. Your heavenly Father loves you. When you speak to him in prayer, he delights to hear your voice. When you breathe in the beauty of a sunset or experience the deep enrichment of of deep conversation with a close friend, God rejoices in your experience. He rejoices in the good gifts that he gives to you. He rejoices in your rejoicing in his gifts to you. When you celebrate a wedding or a birth or a high school graduation, he celebrates with you. And when you experience the crushing weight of loss, and dear friends, so many of you have suffered loss this year, God mourns with you because he loves you. Now, I confess with you that this does not always feel true. And though we may not verbalize it at some level, we often ask the big question, does God really love me? I remember as a young child when I learned that the word but, as in the abbreviated form of buttocks, was not in fact a cuss word. It was a word we did not use in our house, so my young imagination categorized it with other vulgarities like like darn and heck. And I'm sorry, parents, I should have given you an ear-covering warning there, but I apologize. So you can imagine my shock when the following scene unfolded. I was being scolded for something. I don't remember what it was, but um, because my dad's in the room this morning, I'll say it must have been well-deserved. And I was probably about six or seven years old. And he asked me a question I was trying to answer, and I stuttered, no, but. And before I could finish, he said, no, but? You'll have no but if you keep this up. And my young brain reasoned, if, if my dad is so angry that he would say that, he, he might actually spank my bottom off. But, pun intended, thank you, God blessed me with a dad who pursued a relationship with me so that even on occasions like that, I never doubted his love. Never. Not once. Not one time did I have a reason to doubt that he cared for me and would provide for me and would be with me. Now, I doubt that any of us could say the same thing, have the same confidence in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting in any way that God is a distant Father or that He fails to communicate His love to us adequately. This is our problem, right? This is our weakness. This is us as rebellious children wandering away, doubting, questioning his love for us. And Zephaniah helps us understand what's going on in our hearts. In my house, we experience tension between parents and children sometimes. And when that happens, it's usually due to a misunderstanding of the relationship, right? It's natural for kids to have a sense of entitlement, 
I provide their shelter, their food, their clothing, their toys, their education, their affection, and I make sure that they have everything they need. And sometimes children will overreach, right? They become so accustomed to good things that they overreach for things that aren't theirs to have. It's this childish assumption that because I gave them a skateboard for, for Christmas, they should be able to have that Nintendo Switch game that they want as well. Or more common, that they should have all the Switch time that they want, right? Common question from the little ones, is it my Switch day today? No, it is not, right? Uh, it should be time to eat ice cream when they want. Their brother should behave the way they want him too. Children forget that moms and dads set boundaries for their own good that chores are for their own good, that we say no for their good. And this is exactly what strains our relationship with God. Because God delights to bless us, we begin to think that our definition of blessing is the standard. We forget that God gives and takes, he blesses and withholds for our good. We become accustomed to good health, so we expect a conflict-free marriage. Right? He, he blesses us with a good job, and so we just assume that the next promotion should be ours. We become accustomed to a comfortable home, and so we're shocked when we're struck with illness. We become accustomed to a Judeo-Christian society, so we become indignant when politics move our culture in a hostile direction. We say, God, what are you doing? Don't you know that you can't make it without the North American church? Protect us. None of these things belong to us. Just like a parent denying ice cream or a video game, God owns the cosmos and establishes our place within it. Zephaniah reminds us that in God's unwavering, effectual love for us, he has drawn distinctions. He has created boundaries around us to protect us and to shape us for his glory and for our good. And so this morning we will see three distinctions that God has drawn. Three places where God says, it's, it's this, not this. This is not what I've prepared for you because I love you. So let's see first, the first distinction that we'll see is this. God makes a distinction between children of the world and children of God. Let's begin with some historical context. Look at verse 1, and then we're going to turn back uh, to 2 Kings chapter 21. So go ahead and uh, keep your finger here, but we'll spend a little bit of time in 2 Kings 21 we read in, in verse 1 of our text, before we go to 2 Kings, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, probably a familiar name to many of you, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So let's look back, 2 Kings 21, and pick up some of this historical context. Zephaniah's ministry took place in Judah during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah's grandfather was a man named Manasseh, whose 55-year reign was the most wicked in Israel's history. Manasseh was an evil man and led Israel to commit much sin. Look in with me at 2 Kings 21, verse 4. Speaking of this king, it says, He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. So these are altars to the, the idols of their pagan neighbors. Verse 5, he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 6, and he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Look at verse 9, but they did not listen 
Manasseh led, speaking of, of the, the children of Israel, they did not listen. Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Because of the wickedness, God vowed to bring judgment upon Judah. Let's look at, pick it up here, verse 10. We'll read a few more verses. The Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all of the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Now, I grew up in a context that was uh, King James only. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that particular uh, wing of, of the Christian church, of the Baptist church, but I, I have this suspicion, I can't prove it, but this suspicion that much of the King James only movement is driven by, by women, because in the King James, this verse reads... Um, that uh, they will wipe, I'm sorry, I lost my place, and uh, I'm trying to make a joke, and it's, it's failing miserably. Uh, <laughs> I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I'm sorry for wasting your time with that. Let's move on. Verse 14. <laughs> I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become prey and spoil to their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight. And have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Imagine this is happening in Jerusalem of all places. A king so wicked to sacrifice his own child, to, to enrage God, to bring the wrath of God on the nation of Israel. After Manasseh's death, his son Ammon took the throne for two years and continued in his father's footsteps. He was assassinated by his own servants. And then his son, Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he took the throne. And scripture offers no explanation for what comes next. But look over at chapter 22, verse 2. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. How? Have you ever thought about the life of Josiah? Who taught him to do what was right? Who showed him the way of the Lord? I don't know. There's no explanation given. It does mention his mother's name, which doesn't always appear in genealogies. Maybe she was a godly woman. Maybe it was his mother who pointed him on the, on the right path. We don't know. But Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn to the right hand or to the left. During the 13th year of his reign, God instructed Josiah to fund the ministry of Hilkiah, the high priest. The priest began a, a campaign to restore the temple, which had fallen into disrepair. And during this restoration project, we read, it's one of the most exciting stories in all of the Old Testament, and it's almost glanced over. It's very brief, but there's an amazing thing that happened here during this project. Hilkiah came to the king's secretary, and he says this, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. It had been 70 years since a king sat on Jerusalem's throne who sought the word of God. And the secretary read the scroll and then brought it to the king. And look at 22:10 and just hear the, the pure ignorance in these words. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. A book. It's not a book. Th these are the stories of your ancestors, the story of creation, the Exodus, the Ten Commandments, 
the Psalms of David, and he says, a book that people don't know. They are so far removed from the things of God that they don't even recognize Scripture when they hold it in their hands. Seventy years had erased all knowledge of God from the minds of his people. We see Josiah's response in verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. My friends, when we hold up the standard of God's word against our society, how do we respond? We respond honestly. Great is the wrath of God kindled against us. We have failed to be obedient to what's written here. Or perhaps a more poignant question is, when we hold up this standard to our own private lives, how do we respond? Have I lived up to the standard that is written here for me. Josiah responds by issuing two reforms. The first took place in the year 628 BC. Idols were destroyed, pagan priests were deported, pagan practices were outlawed. Verse four of our text back in Zephaniah mentions the remnant of Baal, suggesting that Zephaniah was written between the two reforms. Some of the work had been done, some of the, the, the priests of Baal had been driven out, but not all of them, there were still some there. The second reform had not yet come. This gives us a date for Zephaniah about 626 BC. Could be one way, a little bit either direction, but probably about 626 BC between the two reforms. And this makes Zephaniah a contemporary of, of Joel, Jeremiah, and probably Habakkuk as well. So when you read Zephaniah, you can read those other prophets kind of in parallel and see this judgment that the, the prophets are preaching. The prophets are warning the people of the wrath to come. That wrath that God had promised Manasseh it hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. This would have been an exciting time to be in Judah. Back in our text, right, glorious things are happening. People were honoring God for the first time in 70 years. It would have been thrilling to see. It would have been much like, I think, being in the Southern Baptist Convention when the conservative resurgence was happening, when they're saying, no, this is the standard. We will obey God's word. Much like that, that those same kinds of ideas and, and things going on. There's anticipation uh, in the air. And with that, we begin reading, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, uh, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. This is going to be good, right? Josiah's on the throne. We're pushing out the pagan practices where we're turning back to true worship of God. And so we go to verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What? What's going on? Josiah's on the throne. We're reformed. We're pushing out Baal. What is happening here? I will wipe away everything. Maybe he's just talking about, about um, the bad guys, right? Context helps. Let's look at verse 3. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. Okay, rubble and wicked. Maybe he's talking about the neighbors, right? Like the, the Amorites and the, the Syrians and the Babylonians and all that. Well, let's keep reading and see. Verse 6. I will stretch out my hand against Judah 
against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests. So these are priests who, who are sp specifically for the Baal worshipers, the, the idolatrous priests, but then also the priests. These would have been the, the Israelites, those performing uh, the liturgies of, 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 uh, of Jerusalem in, or the, of Israel in Jerusalem. They're all wicked. They're all, God says, I'm, I'm taking them all out. Verse five, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, which is the Hebrew word for my king. So these are either people who are elevating the king to a place of idolatry, or this is a name for another pagan idol. I'm not sure which, it could be either way. But these are people who are not swearing by God solely. Verse six, those who have turned their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. What is going on here? Although Josiah is doing good work, the hearts of the people, religious and secular alike, are far from God. There's been so much wickedness, so much idolatry, so much going on in the land, so many people, their backs turned to God, that even though Josiah is outlawing certain practices and upholding the right practices, the hearts of the people are far from God and their outward conformity is not enough to stay the hand of God's wrath. God's never been after outward conformity. God's after the heart. And the hearts of the people are far from him. 2 Kings 23, 26, you don't need to turn there, but under the reign of Josiah, we read, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. We read later, Josiah died in battle. His son Jehoahaz took the throne for three months. And then 2 Kings 23:32 says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. He was taken into captivity in Egypt. And then his brother Jehoiakim took the throne. We read just a couple verses later, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Old Testament scholar says this, Josiah's reform measures were the most austere ever attempted. They succeeded in changing the Israelite religious practices and ridding Israelite worship of foreign elements, but they apparently failed to change the hearts of the people. So here's the bottom line. Claiming to be a child of God does not make you a child of God. Coming to church does not make you a child of God. Wearing the right name, coming from the right family, voting the right way does not make you a child of God. We can do all the right things. We can read all the right books, pray the right prayers, sing the right songs, promote the right laws, protest the wrong laws. But if our hearts are far from him, we don't know him. And God makes a distinction between children of the world and children of God. It may be that we find ourselves in a place where we love the things of God, right? We love the fellowship and the stability and the morality, but we don't actually love God. We love his things, we love his blessings, but we don't know him. This does not make us a Christian. Wearing the name of Israel or Judah or Christian or Baptist does not remove you from the wrath of God. God is not impressed by a bloodline or political or religious affiliation. God looks at the heart. He looks at your heart. John 1, 12 through 13 gives us some great news. It says this, to all who received Jesus, 
who believed in his name have the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh. We might be able to borrow from Zephaniah's context and say, not by political reform or by religious practice, right? Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's through Christ, it's our relationship with him. That's what changes the heart. That's what makes us a child of God. This is an inside out work that God produces a heart of humility and trust. As we read through Zephaniah, we'll get more of the content of the book as we move on, but let's jump over for a moment to chapter three, verse 11. This is after the judgments have come and, and Josiah or, or um, Zephaniah is looking to that future day after the judgments when God is doing his restoration work, bringing the people back. And he says, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. They shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Perfect submission, perfect delight. The day is coming. If you know Christ, that day's for you. If you don't, God makes a distinction between the children of God and the children of the world. This distinction is based solely on your relationship with Jesus. Dear friend, if you don't know him, maybe what I'm saying is confusing or unclear, I beg of you, don't leave this morning until you've spoken with someone about this. Don't leave with your relationship with Jesus in question. As we close the service here in a little, I'm not done yet, so don't, don't start getting up, but, but as we, when we do close, there'll be people standing by the doors. You can talk to these folks. Say, hey, I, I have some questions about what was said today. And they'd be happy to sit down with you to talk with you through this a little bit more. But let's see the second distinction. The, the first distinction, God makes a distinction between the children of the world and the children of God. Secondly, God makes a distinction between punishment and discipline. One of the dominating themes in the book of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. Uh, one theologian described this term as it was used by the prophets to refer to any specific period of time in which the God of Israel intervenes in human affairs to save and to judge. So in Zephaniah, like many of the prophets, the day of the Lord is both a time of imminent judgment, like this is gonna happen any time, but this is also a future reality where evil will finally be vanquished once and for all. God's people will be restored to their place of obedience and blessing. This day is coming against Judah, it's coming against their enemies, and it's coming against the entire world. So let's look at just a sampling of these uh, texts from the, from the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So this day of the Lord, it's a dark day. It's a day of judgment that's coming. Look at verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash on the hills. Look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Verse 16, the day of trumpet blast, of battle cry. Look at verse 18. Neither their gold nor their silver shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
Look at verse chapter two, verse two. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before he comes upon you, the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you, the day of the anger of the Lord. All right, so this day of the Lord, is a day of judgment against God's enemies, against the people of the world who do not follow him. But then it's also a day of redemption for God's people, a day of rejoicing, a day of restoration. Look at verse uh, chapter three, verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deed by which you have rebelled against me. Isn't that a great comfort? All right, if you're a child of God, you, you, you sense within yourself there is that rebellious seed. There's still that, that, that seed of flesh, that seed of sin that's still there, and, and we, we struggle against it, right? Romans 7 talks about this great struggling against our flesh, right? And it's there. But as a child of God, that, that, that bothers us. It, it tempts us to sin. It causes us to struggle in prayer and scripture reading and, and worship. And he says, because on that day, on the day of the Lord, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. God will overcome. God will overcome sin. He will overcome temptation. He will overcome our own weaknesses. Verse 16, he says more about this. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So the day of the Lord will eventually lead to vindication and the blessing of God's people, but it is a day of cataclysmic, terrifying events, even for God's people. The day of the Lord is a day of, of calamity. It's a day of darkness. We're given warnings in scripture even to flee and to hide from what's to come. Like in chapter 2, verse 3, we read part of it a moment ago, um, warning about the day of the Lord, and then verse 3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Jesus taught us in Matthew 24, 16 through 18, he said, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. He says, when you see the day of the Lord come, flee. Right, if you have a place to go, go. If you can get to the mountains, get to the mountains. And yet, Amos, remember Amos a few weeks ago? There's a passage from Amos that says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from the lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. I mean, what a story, right? It's talking about a guy who's out there, he sees a lion and he gets away from the lion and he encounters a bear. And so he runs into his house and leans against the wall and a snake bites him. He says, that's the day of the Lord. It's like you can run, but you can't hide. When God's judgment comes, it will find you. When God brought his judgment against Israel and Judah, we know that godly people suffered alongside the wicked. Even Josiah died in battle, fighting against the enemies of God's people. And in Zephaniah, he calls this punishment. Look at verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold 
and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So for us, I, I wonder, when God rocks the world with a pandemic and all the political, economic, cultural, financial domino effects of it, is God punishing us? God struck Israel with a plague after their illicit romance with the golden calves. Do you ever fear that God will punish you in a similar way for some offense? Your heart strays, your worship wanders. Will God punish you? When God rocks your life with, with loss or with suffering or with tragedy, is God punishing you? As we consider God's love for us in such a violent text as Zephaniah, it's helpful to understand that God draws a distinction between punishment and discipline. They're not the same thing, punishment and discipline. There's three characteristics of punishment that help us understand here. Punishment is about conformity to a standard of behavior. If we look at the people that God's punishing here in chapter 1, verse 8, these are people who have utterly rebelled against him. These are officials who are leading Israel to sin. These are political and religious leaders who are uh, overtly rebellious against God. Punishment is about conformity to a standard of behavior. Uh, for example, our prison system, we call it the penal system. It's from the same root as, as punishment or the word punitive, right? And when a prisoner goes before the parole board uh, to consider uh, their release, they're not considering, the parole board's not considering the prisoner's heart, right? They're not asking him, how do you feel about this? What's your relationship like with the warden? No, they're looking for outward conformity. They're looking for conformity to a standard of behavior. They're considering the prisoner's ability to reform to societal standards. Secondly, punishment is transactional. You often know the penalty before you commit the offense, right? You know what the speed limit is, right? We know what it is, and we, we know what the consequence is of violating that standard, and then we make a calculated decision frequently on whether or not we're going to risk the penalty and, and violate the standard, right? That's punitive. There's no heart in there. There's no relationship in there. When the, when the patrolman pulls you over, he doesn't care if you like him. He doesn't care if you, if you go to lunch later, Right? No, he's, here's the standard. You violated it. Here's the punitive. Here's the punishment that comes from that uh, encroachment. Thirdly, punishment is not relational. God's punishment is for those who have no interest in knowing him. He still expects a level of conformity for the sake of stability in his world. This is why Paul can say in Romans 13, while Nero is the emperor of Rome, that political powers are God's messenger for good. All right, check it out. Verse, chapter 1, verse 8. On that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, all who array themselves in foreign attire. I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. This is a, an aggressive pursuit of other people's wealth. Those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. These are people who do not know God. They have no desire to know God, but God expects at least a transactional conformity for stability in his world. He owns the cosmos. He expects his creatures to behave in a certain way. Discipline, however, is completely different. Discipline is relational. Its purpose is restorative. Its function is proactive, 
right? And, there, and even within discipline, there are two forms of discipline, corrective and constructive. Corrective discipline is not pleasant. Corrective discipline may look and feel like punishment, right? Like, I'm gonna spank your butt off, kind of, right? That's corrective discipline. It may look and feel like punishment, but it seeks a very different outcome. In Leviticus chapter 26, this is during the Exodus, right? The people have come out of Egypt. They're on their way to Canaan, to the promised land, where eventually the nation will be established and all these events we're reading about will take place. But during this Exodus, God is giving, uh, giving Moses the law. And in Leviticus 26, it's looking forward to that day when they're in the land and he's teaching the people. He's teaching them what his standards are. He's teaching them, warning them not to commit the sins of the Canaanites. And he tells them in, in chapter 18, it's because of all these sins I'm driving them out. Don't commit those same sins. And then we get to chapter 26 and the teaching continues. And he says, and in, in spite of this, right, in spite of all this instruction, if you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. It's not pleasant, right? But the intent is corrective. It's to bring them back into relationship with him. He goes on and says, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. So it's not pleasant. It looks a lot like the stuff of Zephaniah. In fact, it may be the exact stuff of Zephaniah, but the intent, it's not to punish you. It's not to break you. It's not to, to make you conform outwardly to a standard. It's to reestablish this relationship, to reestablish your heart bent towards him, not away from him. Later in chapter 26 of Leviticus, God says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them, and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, right? That's a theme from Zephaniah, that humble heart that kneels before God. Their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they amend, they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. Come back. That's the theme of this whole series is come back. That's the purpose of corrective discipline. One night in our fellowship group, uh, John and Ramona Rogers shared a story about their three-year-old granddaughter, Ruby. And I told him I was gonna use this, so he actually sent it to me in an email. Ruby was summarizing the book of Jonah, three years old. And this is, this is her summary. Hobson, this would have saved you a lot of time. <laughs> Jonah didn't have on his listening ears and the whale ate him up. Then the whale spit him out and Jonah had on his listening ears, <laughs> right? Corrective discipline, there it is. It's hard, it's unpleasant, it feels like punishment, but it's very different than punishment. If you're a child of God, he's not punishing you. He may be disciplining you, I, I can't speak to that, but he loves you. He loves you and he's bringing you back, come back to me. Constructive discipline is the other form of discipline, and it is the daily reality of being a loved child of God. 
Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read a chunk of this without much commentary. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. I beat you there because I have a bookmark in my Bible because I knew I was going there. But uh, chapter 4. In your, my jokes are horrible today, I'm sorry. But um, in your struggle against sin, listen to this. This is the love of God pursuing us. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Right? He's like, you're not dead yet. Isn't that, isn't that a dad thing? That's not a mom thing. That's a dad thing. Right? You're just bleeding, kid. Get up. Right? You've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, listen, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I've got five of them. I discipline you guys, right? Because I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Right? That's the best we can do. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the, moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. This sounds a lot like Zephaniah. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, right? This is church discipline. Come on, brother. Come on, sister. Let's walk this way together. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. And he goes on. But sometimes God brings suffering into our lives not to address a specific sin or offense, but to draw us into a deeper walk, into a greater understanding of love and grace. The first week that we met with our current fellowship group, we discussed the sermon from Jonah. And the study guide asked this question, right? It says, sometimes God harms in order to heal how have you seen this true in your life? And those in our fellowship group, you remember the conversation was, it was overwhelming. As people shared these stories of deep suffering, that, that just drove them deep into the arms of Jesus. Right? And it was, there were tears and there were long pauses of reflection. And many of you have experienced this in ways so much deeper than can be expressed in a sermon. You've lived it. Right, you've experienced the discipline that God brings into your life that brings you closer and closer, deeper into his love. And you may be kind of on the edge of that. Right? In your walk with him, it's not so close right now. And you're feeling that pain, you're feeling that pressure, and, and you're questioning what's happening here. Is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong? And, and dear friend, it, it may just be that that God's wanting you to see the sweetness of Christ, that walking with him is so much better, right? Paul said, the suffering of this present time cannot be compared to the glory that awaits. 
right? We make those comparisons all the time. We make those evaluations where we say, you know, I, I want to learn how to speak Spanish, but it's, I don't know if the pain is worth it, right? Or, or those people like my wife who actually remember stuff they learned in school, at some point she was like, yeah, the pain's worth it. The pain of learning this thing is not worth comparing to, to the glory, to the wonder of, of having that discipline, of having that ability. We make this decision at the gym all the time, right? I want to pick that thing up, but I kind of want to go eat a taco too, right? The pain, is the pain comparable to the glory that awaits? And Paul says for the Christian, there's no comparison. You will experience pain. It will be hard. God is disciplining you for his glory, for your good. There's no comparison between the pain now and the glory that awaits. So in Zephaniah, there's one event happening. It's the day of the Lord. But there's a profound difference between God's punishment for those pretending to be his children and God's discipline for those who truly know him and truly desire to walk with him. Consider the difference between 117 that says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. That's one theme. Look at 315. Same event, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So why does God allow discipline when it hurts so badly? I'm going to give you six reasons. I'm looking at the time. We're bumping up against it. But I've not preached in a long time, folks. Last time I preached, I was in Kuwait. So you're getting it all right now. No, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be quick. Six reasons from Piper why, why God allows suffering. Number one, suffering deepens faith and holiness. Suffering deepens faith and holiness. Many of you have experienced that. Number two, suffering makes your cup increase. And referring to the, the Romans passage, which I was summarizing earlier, he says this, there seems to be a connection between the suffering endured and the degree of glory enjoyed. All right, so the more we suffer on this earth in, in Christ, walking with Christ, the more glorious heaven looks to us. Number three, suffering is the price of making others bold. And then being Piper, he spends many pages telling the stories of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and many other missionaries who suffered greatly for the Lord. Suffering is the price of making others bold. Number four, suffering fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that sounds dangerous, but it's based on scripture. Hold on. I rejoice. This is Paul, Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affections for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And to summarize Piper's explanation of this, our suffering makes Christ's suffering more real and more tangible to those who need to see it. Right? So we tell the stories of Jesus, and as we suffer, as our friends and loved ones and neighbors and coworkers see us walking through hardship in faith, it makes the cross look that much more believable. That God would indeed send his son to suffer in our place for his glory and our good. Number five, suffering enforces the missionary command to go. My Hebrew professor was a man named uh, Dr. Stephen Schrader. Um, extremely eccentric, like most Hebrew professors are, uh, just an awesome child of God, just a great example and an encouragement to us. Shortly after I graduated and moved away, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. 
and um, they fought it for quite some time. They ended up uh, traveling several states away to a, a treatment facility where she was hopefully going to get the help she needed, um, but it, ultimately she, she died in that facility. And the Schrader family, being the strong believers that they are, uh, during that whole time, they had multiple opportunities to share their faith over and over and over. And in fact, the day that she learned that her cancer was terminal and that her time was very limited, she got the news that morning. And then another, uh, a friend that she had made in the hospital, he learned that his cancer was actually on the mend, but then asked her, hey, you've been such an encouragement to me. Would you sit with me during my last treatment? So she spent almost the whole day with him as he was receiving chemo, knowing that he was being healed. And she had not told a soul that she was terminal. She kept that between her and Jesus until she'd finished her ministry to him. And then she called her family and said, I need you. Right? Suffering enforces the missionary command to go. Suffering puts us in places where there are divine appointments where God says that this is for you, right? This is for you. And we're gonna talk about that in just a moment. These divine appointments, these ways that we minister, that we witness through our hardships. Number six, lastly, the supremacy of Christ is manifest in suffering. When all else fails you, and it will, the beauty of Christ shines supreme. You may be listening to this and you're, you're still stuck in this transactional relationship with God. You're going, I don't get it, right? Because I know that there's things I've done, there's ways I have failed, there's people I have hurt, there's ways I've offended God, and I don't understand how this relationship works. You correctly sense that the wrong you've done must be accounted for. But may I gently suggest that you wrongly think that accounting is something you can do. You can't account for your wrong. You can't pay for what you've done. The only transaction that appeases God's wrath towards sin was accomplished some 650 years after Zephaniah on a hill outside Jerusalem. It was there that as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The transaction was this, Jesus took our punishment so that when our faith is in him, there's no punishment left for us. However, outside of Christ, your punishment is still due. If you're not in him, the punishment is still due you. My dear friend, God's invitation to receive Christ is for you. He took your punishment. Come to him in faith. Lastly, I want us to see this. God makes no distinction between those he blesses and those he calls. I said three distinctions. That's mostly true. The last one is not a distinction. God makes no distinction between those he blesses and those he calls. Zephaniah is, is constructed in a very common uh, literary form. A lot of ancient literature is, is constructed this way with bookends, where it begins and ends with the same or similar theme. Zephaniah begins with, um, with the judgment coming on Judah. We read that chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. It ends with a blessing for Judah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. So these are bookends. And when you see bookends in ancient literature, you know that the content between it, right, everything inside of those bookends, is commentary on the big message, on the big picture. So this whole book, the theme is God's relationship with his people. 
That's the theme of Zephaniah. That's the message of the book, God's relationship with his people. There's judgment coming, there's discipline coming, and there's restoration. Everything else in it, including God's judgment against the nations and God's judgments against wicked people, all of that is commentary on this relationship with us. The big picture. Um, the book ends, it places the emphasis on God's relationship with his people. The intent then is this. As God works in his people, we are to be his example of grace. As God disciplines us, as God works in us, we are to be the shining example of grace. Look at chapter three, verse 20. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is not, this is not at all God saying, I'm going to elevate you so other people will say, I wish I could have that. Not at all. This is God elevating his people, God blessing his people, God giving grace to his people so that other people will say, how can I have that too? And we have that answer. It's through Jesus. It's in Christ. That's how you can have that blessing as well. This looks back at, at, um, back at Genesis 12, right? When God called Abraham, when he first called him, you are blessed to be a blessing. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. My freshman year of Bible college, I took a class to World Missions with veteran missionary David Lingo. Everybody in that pew over there knows that guy, right? David Lingo, he had a glass eye. Um, he'd lost it fighting a rooster when he was a little kid in Columbia. Um, horrible story. But, uh, but he, he was a funny guy, and he never knew he was looking at it. He'd ask a question, and he'd raise your hand, and you couldn't tell if he was looking at you or somebody over there because that glass eye. And then he'd joke about it all the time. He'd say, I'm a one-eyed missionary. Um, he'd suffered, right? He'd suffered. But... His class, Intro to World Missions, he outlined uh, the, the Bible under these headings, and we just walked through it through that whole semester. And the heading was this, the God of the Bible is, I'm sorry, the God of the Bible is a missionary God. And we'd walk through the Bible with headings like this. The God of creation is a missionary God. And we looked at the fall and the proto-evangelium from Genesis 3.15, right? This, this hinting that the Savior would come one day. And then we got to the Exodus, and he'd say, the God of the Exodus is a missionary God. And we'd look at the Ten Commandments, and he'd point out uh, the, from, the, from the prologue, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then they implied, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And he'd say, our life as Christian people, our obedience to Christ is because he saved us from sin. That's our message. That's what we're preaching to our, our loved ones and our neighbors. And he'd go through all of scripture. The God of the conquest is a missionary God. And when we got to the prophets, the God of the prophets is a missionary God. And he'd pull out little nuggets like this from Zephaniah 3.20 and say, the people will praise me in you. As God blesses you, the nations will see that and will turn to me. That is a way that God calls people to himself. I will bless you, Genesis 12, 20. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Now, folks, I am not a prophet. I am not even a good historian or a student of politics, but this I know. Every day we get closer to the final judgment of the Lord when his wrath will be poured out on sin once and for all. 
And so we, God's children, will suffer alongside the children of the world who have no hope. What will they see in us? As we suffer next to our neighbor, will they see something different in us than they see in themselves? Or will they see fear and anger and accusation? Will they see confidence? Will they see confidence that this day is coming, that we have hope, that we have peace, that we have Jesus? In the book Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark said this, as hope diminishes and fears increase, as opponents rise to power and our cultural influence fades, as we become outcasts and even refugees, it's then at this very moment that the church will have an incredible opportunity for the gospel. Are we ready for that? He goes on and says this, we must not, according to Peter, tremble in fear at the thought of surrendering a job or a business or a failed school board uh, initiative or a particular Supreme Court decision because if we do, we're preaching the completely wrong gospel to the world. We're telling them that our greatest fear is the loss of money and power and influence, the loss of our beloved comfort. But as long as that is the case, we are showing them our fear and our gospel is no different than theirs. I'll read that last sentence again. As long as this is the case, we are showing them that our fear and our gospel is no different than theirs. The judgment coming on the world is first and foremost about God calling his beloved back into an intimate walk with him. So put on your listening ears, yield to that loving discipline, let the church be encouraged, let the world be pointed to Christ because of our quiet and humble obedience. So at the beginning, we ask the big question, does God really love me? Yes, yes, God loves you. He loves you so much that even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you've not put your faith in him, I urge you, do so before it's too late. You do not know how many days are appointed to you in this life. You do not know when God's judgment will come. Trust him today. I close by inviting you to look one more time at chapter 3, verse 17. For children of God, this is our verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the only place in scripture where we see God singing. And God sings when his children, who are rebellious, he said it just a few verses ago, when his rebellious children come home, he restores them into an intimate walk of fellowship. And he says, you're mine. I'm in your midst. I will rejoice over you with loud singing. The mighty God of Judah shows his strength not to terrify us, but to preserve us for his glory and for our good and for our witness to a world that needs the hope we have in Jesus. Please stand with me. Let's bow together.